Welcome back to Corn Syrup, a horror podcast. I'm Tyler. And I'm Chelsea. Whoa. <laughs> That's not Mike. No, it's not. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. This is my wife, Chelsea. She is guest co-host today. Mike will be back for the next episode. In the meantime, Chelsea will be subbing in for him. And we are discussing one of her favorite directors of all time, one of his more infamous movies. It's Alfred Hitchcock and his movie Psycho. We're going to be doing a uh, original versus remake, which we've done for Last House on the Left. We did it for one of our Christmas episodes with Black Christmas. And here we are comparing the classic 1960 Alfred Hitchcock Psycho to the Gus Van Sant 1998 Shot for Shot remake, which is kind of weird. This is a little bit of a weird episode of remake versus original just because the remake is just a complete rehash, more modernized with a lot worse acting. (laughs) Uh, But we'll be discussing the remake as well. How's it feel to be making your podcast debut? I'm excited. I'm a little nervous, but I'm not as funny as Mike, so sorry, guys. (laughs) That's true. Um, Let's get into some horror news before we get into breaking down uh, the original Psycho. First off, uh, we haven't made a podcast in a little while now, so some of this news might be a little bit dated. Uh, But a show that you and I both love is Hannibal. We were hoping for a fourth season, and we still are, and we still might be getting it, hopefully. Uh, But in the meantime, there is a new show coming out on CBS called Clarice, which is following Clarice Starling, who was Jodie Foster in the original Silence of the the Lambs movie. And this show is picking up six months after the events of that movie. I don't really have high expectations for this, but I also didn't have high expectations for Hannibal. And that ended up being... Frankly, one of the best horror TV shows of all time, in my opinion, the best. So I don't know. Maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised by Clarice. The story of Hannibal, and it's it's been recreated so many times that it's a little bit hard to keep track. But to me, Hannibal Lecter, regardless, still remains uh, very relevant in horror. So we'll see. Maybe this show will surprise us. Yeah, I'm definitely a little nervous about it. I don't always feel like shows like that get justice on tv um but hopefully fingers crossed but just like you i'm really hoping they bring hannibal back i know i don't know if you and mike talked about this but when they put it all on netflix they went through and brightened some scenes up and stuff so that gave us a little bit of hope that maybe they're gonna do more with it since they invested some money in it yeah for a lot of people that was a telltale sign that hannibal season four was hopefully in the works and that Netflix had heard the years of demand. I mean, horror fans have been clamoring for a fourth season of Hannibal ever since NBC canceled it. And let's be honest, the the only reason that show was canceled after three seasons is because it was on NBC, which I still am a little bit confused as to why NBC picked up that deal. It's almost like they didn't really know what they were getting themselves into, and it just wasn't a good home for that show. I think it would have done great on like an FX I mean, obviously, it would have, it would have been incredible if you could if you could stretch it to an HBO Max or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but even if it was just something like an FX, it could have been a lot more successful, I think. And Clarice is, is like CBS. CBS. Yeah. And truthfully, we don't really know that much about it, other than Chelsea and I are both interested in the Hannibal stories. Um, that doesn't mean this will be good. It doesn't mean 
it'll be bad either necessarily, but we'll see. Wrong Turn is getting a reboot, and it's also it's actually going to be in theaters at the end of January. Uh, my expectations for that are basically zero. Um, I don't even know if you've seen any of those movies. No. <laughs> yeah, you're not missing a whole lot. It's basically like The Hills Have Eyes, but not as good. Uh, so we'll see how that is, but again, expectations, especially... When movies come out in January, it's usually a telltale sign that they're not going to be very good. It's where the movies that the the studios don't really know what the hell to do with them. They just get dumped into January. Yes, and I would imagine especially this January. This January. this It's it's weird to reboot this movie because it's really not... It's, it's blood and guts and nudity, but there's just nothing of substance. It's like this is the last thing that needs a reboot. Moving on from that, the last Purge movie is scheduled to come out in July of this year. I don't know when they started production on that. I was surprised to see that it's coming out in July. Seems pretty quick. I'm not that big of a fan of the Purge movies. I think they're hit or miss. I actually think the the first one's decent. Um, And then they go completely off the rails intentionally. Now, the one thing I'll say about the Purge movies is a couple of them have actually become very relevant, considering the political... (laughs) landscape we're currently living in like back watching purge anarchy i don't really like that movie but watching it you know it's like well this is this is stupid like this is obviously an exaggeration of you know the political landscape but now here we are it's january 10th if unless you live under a rock you know what has happened recently and all of a sudden the purge movies don't look that they don't look like that much of an exaggeration yeah so we'll be getting the last one in july of course they say it's the last one if it makes a lot of money it won't be and we are getting a alien tv series um the only thing that gives me hope for this is it's being uh created by noah hawley and that is the guy who made the fargo franchise on tv i'm a big coen brothers fan so i'm a big fargo the movie fan and you wouldn't think that you could take that 90 minute movie and capture its atmosphere, capture its essence, and turn it into a really good TV series. But that's exactly what Noah Hawley did. So maybe he'll do the same here for Alien. Yeah. And that's that. Unlike Hannibal being on uh, network TV, this will be on FX and Hulu. I would say that has a better chance of being good than Clarice. I would probably agree with you. <laughs> frankly. All right, let's get into the episode. So for anyone who's listened to our Last House on the Left episode or our Black Christmas episode, we break this down based on five criteria. Acting, entertainment, music, the scares, and the writing slash script. We each grade all five criteria on a scale of 1 to 10 for a possible total of 150 per person. And we do that for each movie. Based on that very scientific scale, that's how we determine which movie is better. Uh, If you've seen both of these movies, you already know the answer to that, but we're going to break it down for you anyway. So let's start with the classic 1960 Alfred Hitchcock Psycho, and we will start in alphabetical order with our categories, and we'll go to acting. Tell me what you think about the acting and then give me your grade. Well, before we jump into that, being a big Alfred Hitchcock fan, I wanted to kind of get the news out there and let people know some of my favorite movies, if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Psycho, obviously, on there. Uh, We got The Man Who Knew Too Much, The 39 Steps, 
Rebecca. Now, if you guys are on Netflix, you might see that there's a new Rebecca on Netflix right now. They say that that's not based on the Hitchcock Rebecca. It's based on the novel that the original movie is based on. Um, the new movie doesn't even touch the old one. Uh, that's my opinion, but also I look the Rotten Tomato scores up. The 1940 Rebecca has 100%. The 2020 has a 39. So okay. <laughs> um, we have Spellbound, Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, The Birds, Marnie, and Strangers on a Train. It didn't didn't he direct like sixty five movies or something? And <laughs> so I wrote that down. He directed sixty one movies. Um, Psycho was his fifty third. Wow! But he has a lot of other credits too. He actually was involved with a lot of silent films early mm. in his career, but most of those are actually lost. Okay. There's I think like nine to twelve of his films that he worked on that are completely gone, and some they only have partial reels. So. Okay, now we can get into it. <laughs> yeah, tell me what you think about the acting. I love it. So some of the main characters, obviously, Norman Bates, Anthony Perkins, I thought he was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought he was really good at being awkward and sweet and kind of pulling you in and then making you feel bad for him. Then all of a sudden he flips that switch um, when he when she brings the madhouse up to him. He... he all of a sudden you just see this whole change in his character. And I just thought that that was, it, it was done really, really well. He, he was really good at being agitated at times, but not so much that it felt like it was unrealistic. Overall, I thought he was great. Janet Lee also, I thought she was just her face at times. Like, mm-hmm. and I know that's from working with Hitchcock. He was really good at that, at, the, at zooming in on your face and the unblinking scenes and the black and white and just catching the, the dark and light and contrast. The acting in this movie was unreal for me. I wrote down for Anthony Perkins, I wrote charming awkwardness. Um, and also there's something to be said about playing that complex of a character back in 1960 when mental illness probably wasn't portrayed that much or that accurately at that time. I mean, Anthony Perkins, to me, that's like one of the rare groundbreaking performances in horror that you can that you can look back on. To me, it's like, you know, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter, um, and Anthony Perkins is Norman Bates. It's yeah. it's something like that. Like they're just so so synonymous, and it's it's not a coincidence that Perkins actually dealt with a lot of typecasting after this movie because of his role portraying someone who was psychotic, somebody who was mentally ill. So I think Perkins' performance is. I mean, it's a, his individual performance is a ten out of ten, basically. Yeah. And I kind of feel the same way about Janet Lee. And I'll get into this a little bit more when we discuss the writing, but I actually think the movie misses her a little bit once she's killed off. Because I think um, the chemistry between Perkins and Janet Lee, when there's these long stretches of dialogue, I mean, it's just two badass actors sharing a room with um, a badass director behind the camera. It's just like, it's just like movies at their pinnacle. I think Janet Lee is a lot better than Vera Miles, who plays her sister Lila. And for that reason, and really for that reason only, I gave it a 9 rather than a 10. I don't think she's nearly as good as Janet Lee, And that brings it down very, very slightly for me. Yeah, I gave it a 9 as well. Yeah, I felt the same way about Vera Miles. I, she just felt flat. 
a little bit after Janet Lee, and I don't think that's any fault of her own. I just think Janet Lee was is amazing. Well, me and Mike have talked about it before. It can be really hard and almost unfair sometimes to judge acting that is this old and dated because a lot of times it just doesn't age well. Now, in the case of Perkins, like that has aged like a fine wine. Yeah. But you look at someone like Vera Miles, who was over dramatic, overacting a little bit, probably toward the end there. And it's not that she's terrible, but it's just in comparison to Janet Lee, she does come off a little hokey at times, I think. And also the detective. I don't know if you have his name. I don't know who that actor's name is, but he was also really good. I liked he felt like a typical cop from a movie at that time, like a PI. He had that kind of swagger to him. Yeah. Um, and I really liked that about his character. Well, he kind of had that way of sweet-talking Norman. He was almost playing like the, the, the good cop routine where he was making it seem as though he was friends with Norman. Yeah. But really, he, he was playing mind games and sucking him in, trying to gather information. I mean, the acting in this movie is, especially for a movie from 1960, it's just, it's almost perfect. So, so his name, just to... Get it out there. Martin Balsam, I believe is how you say it. Martin Balsam? Yeah. Okay. And you were saying before with Vera Miles how she felt a little overdramatic at times. I definitely think that's how acting was then. Yeah. Um, and so she was more of that. I think Janet Lee almost acted more ahead of her time. Sure. And so did Anthony Perkins. But I think that's really the difference between the shining stars in this movie versus the stars that don't shine quite as bright. That's an 18 total for acting. Let's move on to entertainment. I'll start this time. Very rarely does a movie with this much dialogue, just listening to people talk. It's very rare that a movie like that can be this attention-grabbing. Like, when you watch this movie, for me personally, I just feel glued to the TV. And a lot of that is just listening to Perkins talk, or listening to Janet Lee talk, or the, 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 or the detective, or even Sam, I think is is really good in this i was just i'm just enthralled by the movie just listening to these characters speak like for example the the dinner scene where she's eating the sandwich in norman's office that's like a 15 20 minute scene and um it's a credit to hitchcock's directing in that scene too with the use of the shadows and if you look closely as she's eating her sandwich like one of the birds is looking over her head with its mouth open uh because norman is into taxidermy so the movie from an entertainment perspective, you could argue not even that much really happens. You know, we're not talking about a super fast-paced movie. But the way that it's done and the way the um, the characters intersect and the way they, they speak to each other and the dialogue just really, really holds your attention. I gave, I gave it a 9 on an entertainment factor. Yeah, so I'm right there with you. I gave it a 9 as well. I'm a big, big Hitchcock fan. So for me, entertainment, it's, it's really built around his directing style. I wrote down here that the scenes aren't too long. And I think mm -hmm. you pointed out that one scene's 15 minutes. I didn't even realize that it was. Yes. So although I wrote down that the scenes aren't too long, they're probably longer than what I thought they were. Um, I love the close-ups and the different angles at which he shoots things. I think that adds a lot to it. One of my favorite scenes is the scene with Marion with the cop yeah. when it's just cut between their two faces mm -hmm. and it's just 
his face with his sunglasses, so you can't really see anything in his face. And it hers, her eyes never blink, and it comes, and it's straight on her face, and her eyes are so blue, you can't see that they're blue, but with the black and white, they're very, very light colored, and the contrast between the two going back and forth, that scene for me is so grabbing. The other scene that I absolutely love is the final closing scene with the psychiatrist, when he goes through and he's explaining Norman's mental psyche, mm-hmm. And I think it's an amazing way to end the movie because there's so much detail that's given in such a short period of time, but it's done really well. The monologue is great. Um, and I thought it was a great way to round the movie off and end it. And then it comes in on Norman's creepy face at the end and entertainment for me. I love this movie. Well, if you're, if you have a passion for filmmaking and you have like a keen eye for directing, uh, you will, I mean, this is this is like a match made in heaven for somebody who really likes the art of filmmaking. Uh, Cause this is just like a master in Hitchcock putting his talents on display. Yeah. Um, and so from an entertainment perspective, if, if that is your thing, you know, you'll love this movie. Let's move on to the music. I don't have a whole lot to say. This is one of the, the most classic horror soundtracks or soundtrack of any genre. I gave it a 10. Um, the, the shower scene is almost like low hanging fruit. We know the the impact the music has on that scene. I don't I don't want to say too much about it because it's it's so classic. What can you say about it? But also they hit you with the music right from the jump start. The very opening credits you get a taste of the music, and this is a very early example in in the history of film how music can play such an important role in movies and how it can really enhance movies. Um, the first example I ever had ever had of that was, you know, 1978 with Halloween. But this this came out 18 years prior. We know Hitchcock was working with his longtime composer Bernard Herrmann. Uh, there's a cool fact that Hitchcock did not want the shower scene to be scored, uh, but Herrmann went ahead and did it anyway, and that really turned into one of the more um, iconic pieces of music to accompany such a legendary scene of all time yeah herman actually told hitchcock like go away for the weekend when you come back because hitchcock wasn't happy with the first dry cut of the movie um and herman told him go away take a nice little vacation and when you come back you'll be happy with what you see and hitchcock reminded him i don't want any music in that bath scene i want it to be silent and he came back and he listened to what herman had put together and he was so happy with it that he actually in the credits uh it was a big deal back then, the order in which the names were in the credits. And the very last one was always the director. Hitchcock gave Herman the second to last one right before him. So It's it's fascinating to wonder what that scene would be without the music. But yeah. I, for one, am happy that it does have the music. So Hitchcock himself funded the majority of this movie. Uh, and because of budget constraints, the the score was done pretty much just with strings. Herman was really a genius. Unfortunately, the, he and Hitchcock la- had a falling out later in their career, and I don't think they ever fully reconciled, uh, but they did have a very close working relationship for a long time, and uh, thankfully they were able to team up with Psycho here and deliver us you know, one of the more iconic scores of all time. Yeah, so the financing of the film, it was purely strings, and then also that's why it's in black and white. Mm-hmm. It's actually in a time where it could have been color. Um, Paramount didn't want this movie, so Hitchcock took 60% ownership in it, and he made $6 million himself, which would now equate to about $50 million. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this, the music is perfect. For me, it's a 10. 
Yeah, I mean, I really don't have too much to add. It, music is a 10 for me as well. Actually, in the the murder scene, when it gets to that real shrill, high pitch, I actually felt the the hair on my arm stand up. That's how moving this music is for me. I think the first word that comes to mind when I think about the score is uh, anxiousness. Yes. It's, re- it's really tense. It really, it's jittery. Uh, and it's just really, really impactful for such a movie that's that's already tense, and the, the music only serves to enhance it even further. Yeah, and it uses the lack of music and total silence just as much as it uses the music, which I think is a beautiful thing. Let's move on to the scares, and for me, this is probably one of the more interesting categories for this movie, because again, you're reflecting on a movie from 1960, <laughs> but you kind of have to push yourself back into that time frame as almost impossible as it is to do that but i will say this and the scariest part of the movie remains for me to be anthony perkins acting it's just so goddamn convincing so watching perkins descend into madness you kind of have to look at it like you're watching this in 1960 because you don't really know where it's going and it's all that more impressive and it's all that more scary if you look at it from that point of view yeah Um, and to add to that at the point in time when this movie came out hitchcock actually tried to buy up all the copies of the novel right before that it came out so that people didn't know the ending right. and they also made the rule in some big cities that the there was no advanced screenings and then once the movie start people could not enter the theater or leave the theater he wanted people to see it from beginning to end and that was it they filmed on a closed set and the cast actually had to sign a form of ndas where they weren't allowed to talk about it so mm. people really had no idea and i I, I can imagine it being scary. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the shower scene, you can understand how terrifying that would be in 1960. It's not to say it's not scary today. It just doesn't carry that same weight based on, you know, the, the, what we see today in film. But a scene like that, man, back in 1960, th- this movie was, was controversial and groundbreaking in so many ways. It showed Janet Lee in her bra a few times it showed her in bed with her boyfriend sam at the very literally the first scene of the movie so hitchcock was really stretching the boundaries here the shower scene being a perfect example of that and really just digging into this the concept of mental illness to me is again putting myself back in 1960 it's an uncomfortable thing um, especially back then, and, and and to me, that's scary. So you, you kind of have to grade it on a curve, I think, a little bit. Yeah, so for me, one of the scariest scenes in the movie was when she was driving in the rain. Oh, you know, yeah, I wrote that down. Because it, I've been in that scenario where it's dark and it's raining so heavy that you can't see, and you're like, do I pull over? I don't want to die. And that scene was actually really scary for me in that movie, yeah. I thought. The fact that it was black and white, he had to rely on, or on light, to make things scary and i think he was really good at using light to make things feel much more ominous um you touched a little bit on how this movie was uh kind of raunchy for its time uh hitchcock was actually supposed to do some filming in disney and walt disney said no he can't come in because he made that quote disgusting movie psycho so huh. during the time it he it was kind of frowned upon all the stuff that he did in this but yeah I mean, overall, like you said, I think you have to put yourself in the mindset of, in 1960, if I knew nothing about this, would it have scared me? Probably. Definitely. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, I've seen, me and Mike talk about it a lot, that 
one of the downsides to being a horror fan, and it's not so much a downside as it is, it's just a fact of life, is I've seen so many horror movies that it takes a lot to scare me. Yeah. I mean, I see a really, a movie that I consider very, very scary once a year if I'm lucky. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, if you watch this back in 1960, this is no doubt terrifying. Yeah, and um, I like the way it was done with very little blood and gore. I mean, in the kill scenes, you you see very little. Um, and even blood-wise, you see, don't see a lot of blood. Yeah. But, but it's still scary. The blood, seeing the blood in black and white for whatever reason is scary. I don't know how to articulate that, but seeing it in black and white dripping onto the, uh, you know, the porcelain white uh, bathtub is unsettling. It's amazing how well this movie holds up over time. And for the most part, the scares do too. I gave it a seven. I gave it an eight. So we're at a total of a 15 for scares. And as you guys can tell, this movie's grading out extremely well, but that's no secret. Let's move on to the last category here for the classic 1960 Psycho. It is writing slash script. Uh, I started last time. I'll let you kick it off. Tell me what you think. So one of the things that I really liked about the writing in this was the, the scene when she's driving away from Phoenix. And that's when they overlay some other dialogue. So it tells you so much more of what what's going on in the story without dedicating physical time to that. And I think that helped the story kind of move along. So you, you hear like her sister and Sam talking or you Mm -hmm. hear her boss talking and you know, they're all wondering where she went with the money. Um, And they, you know, kind of tell you that she's essentially bringing the money to Sam to get him out of debt so that they can be together. I I like that. I think it helped speed the pace along and keep things going. Um, There's some, Really powerful, creepy lines in this. Yeah. Uh, really by Perkins himself, but uh, a son is no substitute for a lover, or a boy's best friend is his mother. I mean, that's the big <laughs> one we take away from this movie. But right. I think the dialogue overall was really, really well done, and it aged really well. It did. Um, the only things that didn't really age was the money. You know, it's $40,000 in cash nowadays. It's not enough for somebody to run away with and start a new life. Um, she paid $700 for the car. You know, those things don't age well, but of course they don't age well. I actually wrote that down for entertainment just because I, I thought it was funny. Like, it doesn't age well, but it's but it's kind of funny looking back on it. Uh, as far as the writing goes, I had an aha moment toward the end when Sam and Lila are at the motel trying to find Marion Crane, Lila's sister. Um, and they basically figured out that Norman was up to something and he had something to do with it. And Sam accuses Norman of doing it for the $40,000. And I had like this aha moment. I was like, wait a minute. They think this is money driven. Yeah. They, they have no idea what they're fucking with here. No. Norman being batshit crazy. Uh, he's gender bending. He's bipolar. You name it. He, he's, he's downright psychotic. So, like, this whole time, they think it's over the $40,000, and they're dealing with something so much more dangerous than that. Uh, it's almost like two separate stories. Right. It's the story of the girl that ran away with the money, and the story of this guy who is clinically insane mm-hmm. and killed his mother and now is essentially bipolar and be- multiple personalities and becoming his mother. And again, not re- not revealing the fact that Norman's mom is a corpse until the end of the movie when he's going into the house and he's conversing with her. 
again, as the viewer back in 1960, unless you read the novel, you don't you don't know what's happening. Yeah. You you think okay, maybe he really is talking to his mom. His mom is still alive. Yeah. So that's just it, it's good writing. It's edge of your seat stuff. I'd I love to read the novel. Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard because I've seen the movie so many times. I know the story, so sometimes it's hard to read things when it's like that. But I'd like to read the novel and see. Is it close? Is it different? Do I think it's a good adaptation personally? I would imagine Hitchcock being the genius he is took a lot of creative liberties, but maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. Back to what you said about the dialogue real quick, aging well for the most part. I think you're spot on about that. It's weird when the movie starts with Sam and Marion in the hotel room. Some of that dialogue is not great. Yeah. And you can tell that it was written decades ago yeah but really that's like the only scene where i really feel as though the dialogue is a little dated and that's yeah. the very first scene of the movie yeah it's there's really no nowhere where i'm watching it and i'm like oh this is cringy no like, the dialogue just doesn't make sense the, the only one really is that that very beginning scene there's some moments where it's a little little cringy but not terrible two things real quick that i'll take away from the writing and these are these are minor complaints uh but just to justify my grade the, the car scene where she buys a new car, like right in front of the cop, I don't really get that. Uh, it def- To me, it defeated the purpose of her buying a new car with the cop basically just yeah. watching her drive away with a clear shot of the license plate. Yes. Again, it's a minor complaint. It doesn't impact my thoughts on the, on the movie overall, but it didn't really make any, it didn't make any sense back then <laughs> when the movie was put out and it doesn't, it makes even less sense now. Yeah. And then, again, I think the movie a little bit misses Janet Lee, Yeah. And she's killed off so early, 45 minutes approximately into the movie. You really miss the chemistry between Perkins and Janet Lee, in my opinion. Yeah. To me, that's like the, the best part of the movie. So I do think it misses – I do think it misses Janet Lee a little bit. Now, that was a great uh, curveball that Hitchcock put out back in 1960. It was a, it was a really uncommon plot device back then where you would suck the audience into thinking she's a main character, she's going to live, she's going to be there at the end, and then to kill them off. Back in 1960, that just was not done. So it took a lot of balls for Hitchcock to do that. I don't know if the novel does that or not, but it was an interesting plot device to make her, to build her up and make her feel so, so important to the movie and then kill her off less than halfway into it. Uh, So for writing... Minor complaints aside, obviously, it's great. I gave it an 8. I gave it an 8 as well. Okay, so that's a total of 16 for the writing. So that means this is easily the best movie we've graded out thus far. We're only three episodes into this series, which we're not doing it in a row, but we're doing this series a little bit randomly. Um, So that's a 43 out of 50 for me and a 44. 44. So that's a total of 87 out of 100. Pretty much as good as it gets, to be frank. I can't imagine there's a lot of movies out there that would beat it. That's pretty damn impressive. 87 out of 100 for the original Psycho. It's refreshment time. And our refreshment stand is loaded with good things to eat. There's crispy, crunchy popcorn. And hot, delicious buttered popcorn. Lots of candy. And frosty, refreshing cold drinks. Why not treat yourself at the refreshment center now? Let's get into the remake. Um, very strange. Gus Van Sant is a is a very well known director, and oddly enough, 
you're talking about a guy who directed Goodwill Hunting just one year prior to this in 1997. And then he uh, put out the Psycho remake in 1998. So this was a director that was flying high. Um, and this is a almost shot-by-shot imitation of the 1960 classic, except with color, obviously different actors. Other than that, very little is different. Um, a little bit more sex. A <laughs> little bit more sex. The well, only change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. And it's um, it's a difficult movie to talk about. I mean, I, I personally think it's a bullshit movie. Yes. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would watch this <laughs> when you can just watch the original. I think the only people that watch this are the people that say they hate black and white and refuse to watch black and white. <laughs> this is... I, I don't like this movie at all. I don't like I don't like the experiment. You know, I don't like the concept. I don't like the casting. I guess let's just get into it rather yeah. than me talking all long-winded about how much I hate this movie. Um, the acting, I gave it a better grade than I thought I would. I gave it a four, and I'll explain that a little bit. Anne Hesh as Marion Crane is fucking terrible. She's a complete drag. Yes. She got nominated for a Golden Raspberry, and the only reason she didn't win it is because the Spice Girls <laughs> happened to put out a movie the same year, and they collectively won it. <laughs> Or lost it. I don't know how you put that, but I'm surprised Vince Vaughn wasn't nominated for worst actor because he's pretty bad in this. Yeah, and you know, cringy. Yeah, really bad. I mean, Where Anthony Perkins was the exact opposite in the first one. Very, very unconvincing. And uh, me and Mike have talked a lot about in '96. I think it was Paul Rudd was in Halloween Six: Curse of Michael Myers, and he was terrible. Now. He obviously turned into a really good actor, and so is Vince Vaughn. It was weird for him to be casted as Norman Bates. Yeah. It seems wrong. He had this weird little nervous giggle that he did that just didn't make sense. It was meant to be creepy, and it came off just like comical and cringy. Um, So I think I really think Vince Vaughn was just as bad as Anne Hesh in this, and that's saying a lot. The reason I gave it a four and not like a one or a two because I was really thinking I was heading in that direction. Julianne Moore is not bad. No. She's an upgrade over Vera Miles. I agree. I like the way she made it a much stronger character. She's aggressive. Yeah, and I like that. But by far the only upgrade in characters in this one compared to the original. Definitely. And Julianne Moore, we know, has blossomed into a really, really good actress. Um, and she's And she's good in this, despite... You know, everyone else's performances around her. Um, William H. Machey is not terrible. No. Uh, but not he's not great. great. I, I do think he's not as good as the P.I. that we get in the original. And what I said about the chemistry between uh, Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee in the first one, there's no chemistry between Anne Hesh and Vince Vaughn. No. It comes off as awkward. It comes off as... Two people acting in the same room who shouldn't be acting in the same room and conversing with one another. Yeah. Vince Vaughn does not properly display a mentally ill person. He just kind of comes off as a child. Yeah. He has no charm. Where all- Anthony Perkins had the charm and yeah. then flipped, you never saw that with Vince Vaughn. And Vince Vaughn wasn't even awkward. I wouldn't even use the word awkward. I would just say childlike. Yes. And and weird and off-putting. 
Um, I gave it a four, which again, Julianne Moore saved that. That that really could have been a one or a two. Yeah. Well, so Gus Van Sant with this movie actually worked with the actors to determine if they were going to play their character the same or differently from the 1960s version of their character. Uh, I believe one of the only ones that chose to play it the same way was William H. Macy, uh, which he did okay at. Sometimes it felt like he was playing a character. Yeah. Um, And then, so Julianne Moore wanted to be different. I feel like hers was a good change. The Vince Vaughn, he wanted to change the character. I don't like the change. I like the way Anthony Perkins played Norman Bates. Um, so I gave them a three for acting. It, it just left a lot to be desired, I thought. Also, I didn't think Vigo Mortensen as Sam was good either. No. I thought like his weird southern draw in this movie was really distracting. Yeah. So there was a pretty long list of guys that were considered to play Norman Bates. I'm going to hit you with some of them and see how you feel about it. Give it to me. I mean, how could they be worse than Vince Vaughn? There's some interesting ones on here. Okay. Toby Maguire. <laughs> makes more sense than Vince Vaughn. Christian Bale. Better actor. Makes more sense than Vince Vaughn. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix. Well, makes <laughs> makes more sense than Vince Vaughn. And then I don't know if we know these guys. Jeremy Davies. I know him. I can't think of what he's in, but looking at him, he very much looked like Anthony Perkins. Okay. And then Henry Thomas. Yeah. Henry Thomas was big in the 90s, and he's kind of had a renaissance thanks to um, Mike Flanagan, frankly. He's been a lot of Flanagan movies and and TV shows. He was in Haunting of Hill House and then Bly Manor. Um, And I think he was pretty big in the 90s. I mean, I don't know how any of them could have been worse than Vince Vaughn. Yeah. Vince Vaughn was somewhat big at the time. I think he was coming off that movie Swingers with John Favreau, which was more of a comedy. Um, I got nothing against Vince Vaughn. I actually like him a lot. I just think this was, he was like horribly miscast. Entertainment, I'll, you start, I started with the acting. I'll let you kick off the entertainment category here. My favorite scene from the other movie, not my favorite, but one of my favorites was that cop scene. I talked about how contrasting that was. And in a shot-for-shot movie, they lost that. In this updated movie, the cop was the same. But... For Marianne's character, she wasn't dead center of the camera. She was nervous blinking a lot. And I just, that for me was the perfect display of why this movie is not as entertaining. I just don't feel like the characters are genuine. Um, yeah. It was the same thing. What was the point of this movie? That, that That's what I wrote down from an entertainment perspective. I, I don't even know how this movie got funded. And it had a $60 million budget? That is unreal. Why? They didn't have to redo the music. They didn't have to rewrite the script much. And I'm I'm too distracted by the acting and the pointlessness of it all for me to be entertained. One benefit that I'll give this film in terms of entertainment is in the original, Hitchcock wanted the very first scene to be this single pan and zoom shot over the city into the window of the hotel. But the technology at the time just wasn't there yet, so he wasn't able to do that. So he used a bunch of single cuts that he mastered together. The new movie actually fulfilled that dream of his with doing that zoom in, pan Mm -hmm. over the city, which... I kind of thought as a nod to Hitchcock, but then the rest of the movie just... I guess at least Van Sant did something a little different as sort of a tip of the cap to Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. But really watching this movie, it just makes me yearn for the original or like any other movie that has even an ounce of creativity. Yeah. I just don't know why anybody would choose to spend 
an hour and 45 minutes watching this movie when you can spend an hour and 45 minutes watching the original. It just doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And all the lighting does is, like, bring to life the ugly clothing and the the bad 90s hairstyle that Anne Hesh is rocking. Yeah. Like, the lighting doesn't bring anything new to this movie. No. And the her outfits are terrible. Yeah. I don't know if it's supposed to be, like, updated 60s fashion but her dresses look like they're made out of like old curtains like not something anybody wears the movie takes place in 98 so i don't i don't think it was supposed to be fashion from the 60s that's why i don't understand what she's wearing it, it makes no sense Would you, what did you give it for entertainment i gave it a four i gave it a two i wanted to score it lower but it still has that ode to the original yeah where i, I couldn't score it any lower than that the lack of creativity just like hurts me yeah. So I just, everything was just brought down for me. Let's move on to music. It's the same score. It's 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 done on stereo rather than actual strings like Bernard Herrmann did for the original. But it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. Um, just like everything else in this movie. Now, it's still really effective, obviously. But, I mean, I gave it a five just because, like, I don't. I didn't. I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to grade it. It's yeah. still the same great music, but the lack of creativity again. I, I didn't. I didn't know what to do with it. So I gave it a seven, just because I feel like it's such an amazing score that to reuse it worked. I mean, what were you gonna do? You can't put different music. To yeah, this but movie. you you could have though. I mean, like you know, John Carpenter when he. When he came out with Halloween 2, I mean, he really took the original score and just added more synth to it and made it more, like, gothic and hardcore, for lack of a better yeah. term. But I, but maybe they didn't want to take those creative liberties because, again, that's John Carpenter reimagining his own music. Yeah. And Bernard Herrmann at this time was dead. Yeah. And the only additional music in this was, I think there was two scenes. One was when Sam and Lila were at his shop and they were listening to a record player in the back and then the other one was when lila first comes into sam's shop and she has a walkman in yeah. and she pulls it out and it's playing like hardcore rock like really really loud i um, think in the scene where she's buying the car there um there's a rob zombie song playing in the background i'm pretty okay. sure but yeah so there's a little bit of a modernization in terms of the yeah. actual music playing in the background yeah how did you feel about the the scene when she Lila says she has to go back and get her Walkman. Well, it just bleeds nineties. <laughs> I mean, I I don't mind that though. I mean, like I'm a I'm a fan of nineties horror. Like it's it's hilarious to me that Scream came out two years prior to this and reignited a lot of people's passion for horror for its originality and for its humor campiness. And then you look at a movie like this that comes out two years later. And it's the same fucking, you know, you're making a remake, but it's the same thing. And yeah. like you have Scream, which is so original. And then two years later, you get like the most unoriginal movie ever yeah. in 1998 Psycho. I'm going off on a tangent here. It's easy. It's easy to do that for me with this movie. It's um, frustrating. Yeah. But so you, you gave the music a seven. I gave I it did. a five. Yes. Okay. So that's a total of 12 for the music. Let's get to the scares. Um, I will let you start. So the scene that I said was scary in the first original movie was the, the scene when she was driving in the rain. Yeah. They managed to make it worse. Yeah. 
Did you feel that way? Oh, I felt that way completely. It wasn't yeah. scary anymore. You could no. easily see what was going on. It didn't feel like she was being pelted down with rain to the point of she was going to run off the road. Yeah. That disappointed me. Um, and the other thing that I can't decide if I like more or I don't is in the the main kill scene in the shower scene. They changed the shower curtain. Mm-hmm. In the original movie, it was just a clear or white see-through shower curtain. So you yeah. could see the silhouette that it was a person walking through the door. The new one, it was this like crystally one yeah so you couldn't you could see that there was something but you couldn't see that there was clearly a silhouette i can't decide if i like that or not I, it's a change which is nice to see a change but i think i like the original better something they did that was actually pretty scary and uh one of the very few things that they did differently is when they reveal norman's mom's corpse at the end and it has the spider crawling yeah. i wrote that down as the the one good thing that I liked. It's pretty effective. I mean, it's pretty scary, especially if you, if you don't like spiders. It's very yeah. scary. The one thing I hated and I don't understand is the extra shots that they put in during the death scenes. So yeah. when Marion was killed, there was like clouds and a thunderstorm. Yeah. And then when Arborgas was killed, it goes to like this half naked lady yeah. with like a black mask on her face and then a cow. Like, yeah. what? What does that even mean? I don't know. I, it had no relationship to the movie. I don't. I really don't understand it. For the most part, this movie's only scary if you've never seen the original. Yes. Um, and it's not even that scary. It's. And Vince Vince Vaughn. I hate to come back to it, but he he hurts the level of scariness in this movie because he's just not that convincing. No, he. I almost wanted to laugh at him at the end when he came out. Dressed like the mom. He's not unsettling. He's not tense like no. Anthony Perkins. I mean, no. not not even on the same stratosphere. No. So Vince Vaughn again hurts that aspect of the movie. Um, for for scares, I gave it a three. I gave it a four, All just because right. the spider. I thought that was Me the too. only good addition. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the writing. Uh, so they modernized it with the money. The money is now four hundred thousand. The car she bought was four thousand, so they modernized it. That's really not much um, of a compliment to the writing, as much as it was a necessity. But the long stretches of dialogue that I enjoyed so much in the original, in this one, they almost come off as a parody of yes. the original, and that's going back to the performances. Um, so you know, maybe it's not so much the writing, but when you're you know, when you're critiquing a shot-by-shot remake, you kind of have to nitpick a little bit. But the long stretches of dialogue in this movie just fell so flat to me. Yeah. Whereas in the original, they were so captivating. And then that long dialogue at the end by the, psychi- the psychiatrist when he's kind of explaining what's going on with Norman, yeah. it's cut. It's like half the length as it is in the original, mm-hmm. which is sad because I think that's a really good scene. Yeah. It, it perfectly ends the movie and they went and cut it in half. And even like, you know, when Anthony Perkins was cleaning up the body in the motel in the original, like, you know, how captivating that scene was, even little things like that in this movie just lose their charm. Yeah. It just feels cheapened with a, with a much inferior actor. The, the color does absolutely nothing. It's just a disappointing movie. I wish it was never made. I, I don't really understand it. Yeah. Um, but for the writing, frankly, I gave it a two. Yeah. So some of the things that I didn't 
think were great because there were a couple additions. Mm. Some of the additions I didn't think was great was the original movie was already seen as raunchy, racy for its time. Yeah. And then they go and they add more. There's the dirty magazine when she's looking through Norman's room. Then the worst is adding the the jerking off scene. Ah, that was it didn't need it. I'll tell you what, that is just one of the worst sounds ever. I, I did not need the image of Vince Vaughn jacking it. Yeah, and the only other thing in it from a writing, well, not the only, but another thing that didn't make sense to me, when he takes her into the parlor and she's looking at all of his taxidermied birds and he says, you eat like a bird, and she goes, oh, you would know that. And he's like, no, I just taxidermy them. But then at the end, when they find his mother's body, there's a whole thing full of live birds. Yeah. <laughs> so wh- he he just said earlier in the movie that he doesn't know anything about live birds. He only likes them when they're dead. Mm-hmm. Why does he have a big glass room full of birds, live birds? It it, it didn't make sense. It was a, an addition that counteracted the beginning of the script. Yeah. So, so I give it a four. Okay. You went higher than me. I am just so pessimistic toward this movie. I know. It's I, hard I get, to, I, I don't know how this movie got funded. I don't. I don't. But it's hard to... I didn't want to give it too low a scores because it does have so much of the original. I know. That I, if I gave it too low of a score, I felt like then I was starting to brandish on the original, which I don't want to do. Well, it's it's almost an impossible movie to critique. It is. You know, because you, you love the original and there's so much of that in this one. Yeah. But for me, it's just like... It's just the laziness. And yeah. Gus Van Sant tried to defend it. He said... You know, it was it was an experiment. I don't know what that means. I mean, and and even if you view it that way, like some experiments just maybe shouldn't be done. Be done, yeah. Roger Ebert gave it a star and a half and said, "Shot by shot remakes are pointless." <laughs> well, one one of the critics that we read on Wikipedia, I don't know who it was, but they said something like, "The only reason to watch this movie is to see Anne Hesch get killed." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's freaking horrible. And it. Won the raspberries for worst director. And worst director. Worst remake. Yeah. Yeah. And I reiterate, Gus Van Sant is a very accomplished director and was at the time. Again, this was a year after Goodwill Hunting, which is crazy. So our thoughts on this movie really mirror the way critics see it. And they also mirror the way this movie performed. I mean, this was a bomb yeah. in every sense. And I, I think per- they said the producer's barely broke even yeah it was a 60 million dollar budget again i don't know where that 60 million dollars went because on the surface it looks like they saved on casting too like these were b minus actors at best frankly at the time anyway so it generated 37 million dollars at the box office so that's a complete bomb uh to put you know, to put that up against the original, we didn't talk about this when we were discussing Alfred Hitchcock's version, but that was a $807,000 budget back in 1960. It generated $50 million at the box office. Critics for the original on Rotten Tomatoes, 96% from critics, 95% from the audience, and for the uh, remake... 38% from critics, 28% from the audience. So audience actually hated it more than critics, um, which says a lot. For some reason, Quentin Tarantino thinks this movie is better than the 1960. He said it feels more real. I don't know how you can say that. I think Quentin Tarantino, as good as a filmmaker he is, he says some stupid shit. Yeah. Like a few years ago, he was he 
got a lot of attention for criticizing It Follows. Yeah. When I It Follows that. started to become big on a yeah. on a nothing budget. And here's Tarantino criticizing this shoestring budget when all of his movies, I mean, he gets all of the money he needs. Yeah. So for a guy like that to be criticizing a, a small time budget film and a and a big a big a big successful one at that, I think Tarantino just kind of puts his own foot in his mouth sometimes. I think the other thing he needs to remember too is this is nineteen sixty. What Hitchcock has at his disposal in terms of technology is very different than technology that you can get in 1998. Yeah. It would be amazing to see in modern day what a director like Hitchcock would be able to do. So I guess I don't think we counted up the the totals for the 98 remake here. What do you have for you? I have 22. Okay. I have 16. 38 out of 100. Uh, That is not good. No. <laughs> um, it is not as bad as 2019's Black Christmas, and I can't remember what we gave 2006's Black Christmas. Uh, it might have been a, might have been around there. But anyway, that's uh, I I don't have any interest in ever watching this movie again. I've seen it too many times. I and think I, I've seen it three or four times, and it's too many times. I don't have any interest in ever watching a shot-by-shot remake no. of anything. I almost fell asleep today. Yeah, you had Watch. to get some coffee. <laughs> That's how I felt about it. So just to recap, that's an 87 out of 100 for the original 1960 classic Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. And what did we say? 38 for the 98 remake. Rightfully so. Those numbers are uh, very indicative of how I feel about these two movies. Yeah. So that being said, how was your first podcast experience? I enjoyed it. I hope everybody else listening enjoys it. I did bring to tie this in with you and Mike's love of slasher films. So I found a fun little fact online that some fans think there's a relationship between Psycho and Sam Loomis. So the boyfriend's name is Samuel Loomis in Psycho. So there are some theories that say that he's actually the same person and that after finding Marion dead, he became a psychiatrist to stop serial killers from killing others. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So they think that it's the same Sam Loomis, just a young man and then older in his life. And Interesting. No one's ever came out and said if that's true. But <laughs> I thought it was a fun little fact that, well, possible fact. <laughs> fun fact. Hey, you, you, came, uh, you came with all sorts of goodies. <laughs> I've got to make sure you let me come back again. Mike will be back for the next episode. Um, Happy New Year to the cornies, as Mike would say. (laughs) Mike has labeled the fan base the cornies. (laughs) And uh, we will be back. Me and Mike will be back in a couple weeks. We appreciate you guys listening. Thank you to my wife, Chelsea, who came prepared. And uh, we certainly had some fun. Happy New Year. We will talk to you guys soon. Happy New Year.